and you're in your car and you're on your way to an important meeting but you are stuck in a bad traffic jam. The second situation is the, the company that you work for isn't doing well. And on the same day, you receive news from the doctor that it is true. One of your kids is indeed suffering from a very serious illness. Okay, that's the second situation. The third situation, two days ago, two days ago, you committed a sin that you, that you never ever dreamed you would be able to commit. And there you are, you have done it. So three situations, what do you think each of them, you know, together have in common? Well, we'll come back to this at the end, but let's together pray and ask God to help us as we look at His Word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your Word. And we acknowledge that unless you, by your Spirit, open our minds and our hearts to your truth, we would be blind, we would not be able to take it in. So Father, we pray for mercy, we pray for grace that you would uh, do that work which only you can do. That we would hear you, the voice of the living God, and not just the voice of a man. That you would speak to us, each of us here. That you would challenge us, that you would rebuke us, that you would bring conviction and comfort and assurance as you know we need. Please, Father, be with us, speak to us, bless us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might uh, find the outline helpful. And you see that there are three points. And the first is, in verses 6 to 8, God's warning is fulfilled. God's warning is fulfilled. So the camera zooms in on Saul. And we see him in a position of authority. And he's there under a tamarisk tree. And he's uh, speaking. Now notice two things. Who is he addressing in his speech? And what his speech is about. Right, so he says in verse 7 and 8, he says, Listen, man of Benjamin. Now, What's significant about this is that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So, the people that he's addressing, the, the officials of his court, are all related to him. They are from the same tribe. So, it's, you know, his cousins, uncles, you know, brother-in-laws, and all these that are there. It is his own tribe's people. That's who he's addressing. Now, what is his speech about? Well, he says, Will the son of Jesse... And that's referring to David. Will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? You know, will he give each of you an apartment in uh, Reflections by Capel Bay? You know, is he going to make you chief of defense? Chief of army? Chief of armor? Is that the reason why you're all betraying me? Is, is that the reason why you've all joined forces against David to plot against me? So what is his speech about? His speech is the ranting and raving of a king that is so insecure, so fearful, so suspicious that he even imagines, without evidence, his own court officials have turned 
against him. Now that's what his speech is about. But you see, his speech also reveals that God's warning has come true. Because Saul is implying that he has or he will give his lackeys fields and vineyards. Has the son of Jesse given this to you? Well, you know, I have also done it or I will also do it. That's that's what he's implying. That he will give his people uh, fields and vineyards and he has also given them uh, juicy positions of power. Well, this is the warning that God gave to the people through Samuel when they first asked for a king. Right, all the way back in chapter 8. You might want to turn uh, to there, chapter 8, verse 14. And see for yourself, when the people of Israel first asked for a king, God in uh, kindness and mercy warned them that the king that you ask for will be like this. And so we see in verse 14, God through Samuel says, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. So what do we see here? We see that God's warning about the king that they asked for has come true. Saul has become this sort of king. God's warning is fulfilled. See, the people of Israel should have taken God's warning seriously. Just like we today should take God's warning seriously. And one example, we could think of many, but one example that comes to mind was something that was pointed out to me uh, when we were in Australia. You see, the Australians love sports. And a lot of sports for the children are held on Sunday. And so there were a lot of church parents who allowed their children to participate in sport on Sunday. And whether there were, whenever there was important training or important tournament, they would allow their children to skip church. Or they would, uh, you know, move church around the sport. So the sport is non-negotiable. And then, oh, if it coincides with this church we are going to, never mind, we'll change church. Go to another one where it doesn't clash. So you see, the parents in doing this, the Christian parents in doing this, is ignoring at least two warnings. Uh, the first uh, familiar one in Proverbs 22 is train a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. The second warning in a sense that these Christian parents are ignoring is, is the warning to prioritize gathering together as church and not being in the habit of giving up meeting together. And so with these Christian parents, should they be surprised that when the children grow up, church is not that high a priority. Church becomes something that's negotiable. Church becomes something that they choose not to go to. They shouldn't. Because growing up, they ignore the warning to train the child. 
growing up, they ignored the warning to teach the children that this is high priority. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, 100% of the time, Christian parents will do this, definitely will result uh, in the children not going to church. I mean, many times, oftentimes, God's grace will intervene in spite of our failures. But the point is, we must take God's warnings seriously. And in the case of Israel, God's warning was fulfilled. So that's the, the first point that we see. Now moving on, the second point is God's judgment is fulfilled. Verses 9 to 19, we see God's judgment is fulfilled. Now we return to the story and we see that Saul has finished his ranting. He's catching his breath. And now is the right time for Doeg, the Edomite, to speak up. And uh, Doeg, in his retelling of what happened when David came to uh, look for Ahimelech, you see, he puts a spin on the truth. In his uh, retelling of the version of events, he, he tells it in such a way that would get Saul's maximum attention and enrage Saul to the highest degree. You see what he says? <clears throat> I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Esau, at No. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. You see, the, this uh, Doeg left out completely the fact that it was David who you know, told an uh, elaborate white lie and, and deceived Ahimelech. And Doeg even uh, put in the fact that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord, which you look back at chapter 21, did not happen. Well, whatever the case is, Saul's attention has been uh, gotten, and he sends for Ahimelech and interrogates him. Why have you conspired against me, huh? together with David? Huh? David is rebelling against me and you have joined forces with him. Huh? You, you're trying to ambush me together with him, is it? Why have you sided with him? Now, Ahimelech, to his credit, answers with courage and with integrity. And he says in verse 14, I mean, isn't David your loyal servant, the most loyal of your servants? I mean, isn't he your own son-in-law? And he's head of security, right? And he has an honoured place at your table. And Ahimelech goes on to say in verse 15, Was that the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Now, most people when they read this thing that Ahimelech is saying, I have always inquired of the Lord for David. And so, uh, if he did come that time, it would not be the first time. I've always done it for him. But an alternative way of understanding is that, and the more likely understanding is that Ahimelech is saying, I have never inquired of the Lord for him. Was that the first time? No, because I have never done it. So that could not be the first time. Of course I did not inquire of the Lord for him. O king, please don't accuse your servants of conspiracy, for we know nothing about this. But of course, 
whatever Ahimelech will say, it will fall on deaf ears because Saul has already made up his mind. And he orders his guards to kill all the priests. Not just, not just Ahimelech, but all the priests. Because, they are, because he's convinced that they too are part of the conspiracy with David. He tells the guards, strike them. And you can imagine the, the guards standing there and they're looking at each other. Huh? Has he just told us to strike down the priest of the Lord? And to their credit, they exercise sound judgment instead of just blindly following orders. And so once again, this sets the stage for Doeg, the Edomite, to come up. And Doeg not only kills the 85 priests, but their families as well. Now we don't need to linger over all the details, but uh, the priests, their families, you know, women, children, infants, and even all the animals, Doeg massacres. Now what shall we make of this? You know, it comes to us in you know, black and white print. Um, the writer of 1 Samuel has only told us the most uh, salient details. You know, none of the gory details are included. And here we are, you know, sitting thousands of years away from the event. But what if, what if you were there? What if you were one of the guards there in Saul's court and you, you witnessed the senseless killing of the priests of the Lord, and not only that, following after that, the, the family members as well. What if you were there and you witnessed that? What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling in your hearts? Unless you are, you know, um, not human and a serial murderer yourself, your reaction would be, why? Where is God? Why is this happening? Why didn't God stop it? Where is God in all of this? Now the answer I'm going to turn our attention to, let me say right from the beginning, is, is only a partial answer. And in this case, there is at least a partial answer because God's word tells us but even though God's word here tells us, I, I want us to remember that this is only a partial answer. And so for all the other suffering that we experience today or, you know, or in the past, where God's word does not explicitly address, we have uh, much less than a partial, we only have a sliver of an answer. But here, we have a bit more because God's word actually addresses it. So we have a partial answer. We do not have the full answer. And the answer is in chapter 2, verse 30. So please turn back to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel with me. And chapter 2 uh, records the depravity of the sons of Eli. Uh, Hophni and Phineas, you know, it's... It, it sounds like years ago that we were looking at this chapter, uh, but we covered this last year. 
and we were told about how Hophni and Phineas, priests of the Lord, were, were, were having, uh, looking at the sacrifices of the Lord with contempt. They were abusing their position as priests, and Eli did not restrain his sight. He did not do all that he could to stop the abuse that was happening through his sons. And so enough was enough, and God issues judgment. And part of that is uh, captured for us in uh, chapter 2, verse 30. And it reads, Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honour me, I will honour. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family will ever reach old age. I will spare only one. Every one of you I do not cut off from serving at my altar. I will spare only to destroy your sight and set your strength. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Now, as you can guess, Ahimelech is actually a descendant of Eli. And he is in fact the great-grandson of Phineas. And so, the partial answer... The partial answer as to why this is happening, the partial answer as to where is God in all of this, is that he's right here executing his word of judgment. Now, without doubt, Saul and Doeg are responsible. They are fully responsible. They will be held accountable for their, uh, this, this massacre that they have brought about. But you see, even though Saul and Doeg have set themselves. They have raised their fists against God. They have set themselves against God and against His priests. God is in sovereign control. God is in sovereign control. And so even their sin, their rebellion, works out to achieve God's very own purposes. And in this case, it is His word of judgment against Eli. They meant it for evil, but it ended up ultimately fulfilling God's word of judgment. Now I suspect that even after knowing this, there are still some of us here who are uncomfortable. There are still questions, and one of the questions I guess would be, but isn't it unfair? Isn't it unfair that Ahimelech you know, and, and all the other people get punished for what their ancestors did? I mean, it was Eli and Hophni and Phineas who sinned. But what is it going to do with Ahimelech and, and you know, the whole rest of the family? So, uh, before moving on, I want to take a few moments to deal with the question now. Obviously, God's Word doesn't tell us explicitly. You know, you know we'll be covering it. But this is something to help us think. 
about how to deal with uh, such questions. Now, the thing is, the thing that we need to acknowledge and we need to point out is that we do not know. We do not know what ultimately happens to Ahimelech. And we, we ultimately do not know what happens to the other 84 priests and all their family members. We do not know. Now, let's just take Ahimelech as an example. What do we know of him? Well, based on chapters 21 and 22, you know, 21, how he, you know, maybe guessed that David was on the run, and yet, knowing what might be the consequences, he still helped the Lord's anointed. You know, because when David came, even before David said anything, he was trembling, which, which, which was a clue that he probably knew Saul was after David, but yet Ahimelech uh, went along with David's you know, uh, story and provided him with food, provided him with weapons. And so we see here Ahimelech siding with the right king, the right one that the Lord has anointed. And in his answer to Saul, right, we see a person with courage, a person with integrity. Now, any one of us would want to have a Himalek at our side. You know, any one of us here would, would make a Himalek. I think maybe why don't you be deacon in our church? Huh? I think you've got the qualities. Right, I mean. So, so that's what we know of Himalek. What else do we know? We know that he died a violent death. And we know that his whole family was slaughtered. But that's all we know. Now, if I were to give you a choice, would you rather be a Himalek, you know, based on what we know, and die a violent death? Or would you rather be Doeg, who will live to 110, see his children grow up, get married, and die peacefully in your sleep? Who would you rather be? I think based on what we know here, I'd rather be a Himalek. So you see, we know so little. We do not know what ultimately happens to a Himalek. We do not know what ultimately happens to all these families, these people who are massacred. All we do know was that judgment was issued against Eli and it has come true. And what we do know is that God is a righteous judge who sees everything and knows everything. So hopefully that helps with some of the questions. Now, I want to think further with you the truth that we are seeing in this section. That wicked people, in this case Saul and Doeg, they, they, they did evil and they meant it for evil. But we see here God working it out to achieve His sovereign purposes. And friends, this is, this is everywhere in the Bible. This is in, in, in Joseph, this is in Job, this is everywhere in the Bible. And I want to uh, bring us to a New Testament example of this. Uh, the part that we read together in our responsive reading. Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And how that led to a great persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The, the, the young, the church that was in infancy. Great persecution broke out 
men and women were being dragged from their homes in prison. Uh, people like Stephen were being stoned and killed. Who's behind that? Now, of course, it's our great enemy, Satan. Satan, true wicked people, trying to harm the young church. Satan, true wicked people, trying to, to hurt, to, to destroy the young church. But did you catch what happened? The very last verse of our responsive reading, chapter 8, verse 4, that due to the persecution, Christians scattered. They scattered from Jerusalem, and those who had scattered preached the word wherever they went. Such that this young church, far, far, far from being destroyed, the church, in fact, started to grow. Satan meant it for evil. But God was in charge, and His sovereign purpose of protecting the church, and in fact, causing the church to go out and grow, was achieved. So, dear Christian, maybe at this time you are experiencing suffering at the hands of evil men. What you need to remember, what you need to hold on to is that they are not the ones who are in control. It is your loving Heavenly Father who is in control. And this evil, wicked man can do to you only and not anymore. They can do to you only and not anymore what your loving Heavenly Father allows. And whatever happens, it is all according to His sovereign purpose. It will achieve His good and gracious purposes for you. It is all ultimately for your good. They intend for evil, but God intends for good. For good. Your good. You need to remember this and hold on to this. And so if we understand this as well, it will help us obey our Lord's command to love our enemies, to pray for them instead of curse, to not repay evil for evil. How so? How so? Because we recognize that ultimately these people who do evil are but pawns. They are but pawns on my loving Heavenly Father's chessboard. And He's the one moving the pawns for our good. Now John Bunyan, uh, who you know as the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he faced much suffering. Spent 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel and many other sufferings he went through at the hands of evil men. So he had a lot of time to reflect on this and think about what the Bible has to say. And, and he, he says this, Learn to pity. Learn to pity and mourn the condition of the enemy. Never resent them their present advantages. Do not be anxious 
though they spoil your resting place. It is God who has bidden them to do it. To test your faith and your patience. So we, we can see them as but pawns. And so they are doing exactly what my loving Heavenly Father is allowing them to do for my good. And so, in understanding this, I can hold back the the very natural thoughts of revenge and instead do as our Lord commanded to pray and not curse and not want to repay evil for evil. The third point that we see in this passage in verses 20 to 23 is that God's promises will be fulfilled. God's promises will be fulfilled. Now if you notice in chapter 2, God's word of judgment had already hinted at that there will be one who will survive the massacre. Chapter 2 verse 33 literally reads, The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar. So there's already a hint in chapter 2. There will be one. And here in chapter 22, we meet him. And his name is Abiyata. And he is one of the sons of Ahimelech. And so Abiyata escapes. And somehow he finds his way to David and tells David all that has happened. Now listen to what David says in response. What, what a great contrast he is to Saul. Verse 22. David says, <clears throat> That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. This is a king who takes responsibility. He takes responsibility for what happened because hindsight is twenty twenty, And he says, I should have known. But I was too concerned about you know, my empty stomach and the fact that I didn't have a weapon. But, but, but I should have known and I take responsibility. Somehow I should have dealt with Doeg. I should have known. No, I mean, isn't this amazing? As amazing as David's response is in verse 22, it cannot be compared to what he says next. Now, I want you to put yourself in Abiata's shoes. Right? You've just escaped from a massacre of your whole family. Right? Uh, 85 of the, your uncles have died, and all the family members, all your cousins, you know, uh, aunties, all have died. And now you come, and David says this to you. See if you can put yourself in a Beata's shoes and see if you can work out the logic of what David says in verse 23. David says, Stay with me. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. 
Can you work out the logic? I mean, the guy is saying, David is saying, this guy, you know, the one with the army, the one with the resources of all of Israel's army and chariots and the best weapons, you know, he's after me even more than you. He's after me big time. And so stay with me and you'll be safe. Can you work out the logic of David's words? The logic only makes sense. David's logic only makes sense if it rests on a promise. God's promise. God's promise to David that he will be king. That's the promise that David is holding on to. That, that here we have David on the run. He's got 400, you know, weirdos, discontented people. That's, that's his army. And on the other side, you've got Saul, the king, with all the resources, weapons, chariots, everything. I mean, you, you compare the two, who looks stronger? Position of power. Obviously, Saul does. But when you factor in God's promise to David, then if you have the eyes of faith, you will see that David is the one who is in the stronger position and he will not be breached. David does not only have 400 men and the sword of Goliath, he has God's promise. And that's what he's holding on to. David trusts. David trusts that God will keep his promise. And God did. God kept his promise. David survives. And David becomes king. But friends, you see, God's promise to make David king is only a small part of his purpose, his greater purpose of bringing about the true king of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's promises have come to pass. Our king has come. But you see the difference between this king and David, right? David can say, you know, confidently to Abiathar, "Stay with me; you will be kept safe." But this true King of Kings that comes, he was not kept safe. He was given over to the hands of evil men, and he was killed. They meant for evil. But God means for good. He died for us so that we could be reconciled to God. So we come back to the three scenarios that we had at the beginning. What do the following you know, three situations have in common? You know, the stuck in a traffic jam, the job insecure, and you know, your child now diagnosed with a serious illness. And then the third one, you know, you're committing a great sin that you never thought would be possible for you to commit. What these three situations have in common is that Christians in these situations have the great tendency to doubt. To doubt God's promises. To doubt God's sovereignty. Right? If you're in the traffic jam, the moment you complain, 
the moment you get frustrated, the moment you complain, what's happening? That's doubting that God is sovereign and loving. Because if, if you believe He's in control of everything, then He must be in control of the traffic jam. And so if you are there, stuck in a traffic jam, yes, that's God in control. And you can think, yes, He's in control and He's malicious. That's why He's put me here. But no. Do we not see that God is both sovereign and loving? And so it is the same with the other two situations. Yes, things can be going to pots all around us. But it is our loving, sovereign, heavenly Father who is in control and He has made promises to us. The promise to first bring about this King who has given His life for us so that we can be in His kingdom, so that we can be His sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, He's given us His precious promises. I want to end by reading some of those promises. Please turn your hearts and hear what God has promised to us. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. What then? Shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then? is the one who condemns. No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God help us.